0: Sometimes when the girls were little, I would do something, like throw them in the air, swing them around, or give them horsey rides, and when we were through, they would almost always say, if they liked it, they would say, do it again, Daddy, do it again. Then there were times where we had gone by, and we hadn't done that in a while, and they'd say, Dad, do you remember when? And then they'd mention something we had done, and they'd say, hey, why don't you do it again, Daddy, do it again. And I was thinking about that as I was studying the passage that we're going to look at tonight, because for one thing, I have found myself kind of praying that way in my own prayer life uh, recently. It probably started a couple of years ago just in, in a general sort of way. But it really intensified during our study in the Gospel of Mark, which I actually plan to get back to in a couple of weeks. You know, Mark's Gospel is filled with, with Jesus just doing awesome things. He heals the sick. He raises the dead. He casts out demons, he sets captives free, and then you go to the book of Acts, you sort of see the same sort of things happening over and over and over again. The Holy Spirit working powerfully through the early church to heal the sick, cast out demons, set captives free, save the lost, start massive revivals, and just do these great works that are mighty in power and accomplishing things for the kingdom of God. And reading these biblical accounts of God's power, um, and then reading and studying about revivals in, in, our, in church history kind of stirred within me a desire to see God do those sorts of things again. And, and, and not just do them somewhere out there, but do them in Gaiman. Do them in our church and in all of the churches in our community. Right? Because I began to ask, I mean, why can't God do again what He's done in the past? And if He's going to do those things again, why can't He do them in Gaiman? And I think He can, and so I pray almost daily that He will. And in my scripture reading this year, I realized I wasn't the first person to pray this way. Open your Bible to Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. That's page 731 in your pew Bibles. When you find that, I'll ask you to stand to honor the reading of God's Word. Habakkuk 3 and 1, a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Title of the message is, Do It Again. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you tonight. You are great and awesome and worthy of our praise and worthy of our devotion. Lord, we gather here tonight in your name. We have sung your praise when we are looking at your word. Father, we want to take it to heart and be transformed by it. Lord, we do want to see your spirit move in power in our lives, in our church, in our community. So, Lord, tonight as we look at what your word says, what Habakkuk prayed, Father, change our hearts so that this becomes our prayer as well. Give us faith, Lord, to believe and expect that you are the God who never changes, that you can do all things, and that, Lord, what you do in other places, you can do in in Gaiman and in our church and in our hearts and in our lives. Father, fill me tonight with your Holy Spirit. Give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me speak your words and your ways for your glory, I ask in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, the prophet Habakkuk ministered during the, I guess you'd call it the lastish days of the nation of Judah. This was not long before the Babylonians conquered them. The book of Habakkuk begins with Habakkuk asking God, how long? He's going to let Judah keep on in their rebellion and in their iniquity. And, and nothing really happened. God answers by revealing that He was going to send the Babylonians to come and bring judgment. Now, this really wasn't what Habakkuk wanted. Uh, it wasn't what he expected. So he, he sort of argues with God throughout most of the book, which isn't a long book, about whether or not this is the right thing for God to do. And in the end, he, he submits to God's will, but he still prays for revival. In the midst of the wrath that is coming. And that's the prayer that we're looking at tonight. Now, I read it in the New King James because that's my favorite translation, the one I typically use. But there are some times where I prefer the wording of other translations. This is one of them. Uh, The Christian Standard Bible is my favorite in this. And here's what it says. Here's what it says: Prayer of the Prophet Habakkuk, Lord, I have heard the report about you. Lord, I stand in all of your deeds. Revive your work in these years. Make it known in these years. In your wrath, remember mercy. So the flow of thought of Habakkuk's prayer. I've heard reports about what you've done. I'm in awe of what you've done. Do it again. Do it again now. Right now in our day. I mean, that's a big, bold prayer that Habakkuk prays. And it is an example for us on how to pray and there's four ways for us to follow Habakkuk's example in this. First is, know what God has done. Know what God has done. right? Habakkuk had heard, he, he knew about the things that God had done for Israel. You could say that Habakkuk was a student of the Word. He had been in the Word and through the Word was made aware of the greatness of God's power and the ways that God had worked on behalf of Israel in the past. Now, like Habakkuk, we should be students of Scripture so that we can know what God has done in the past. Because everything ultimately has to come back to what does the Bible say. Um, And and so what does the Bible say? What are some things that God has done in the past that if we're saying, God, do it again, that we want Him to do again? Initially, when I made my outline, I had like 12 things. It wasn't time to do it. So there's, I think, three is what I settled on. Two of them we're just going to quickly summarize. And one we'll look at a little more in depth because it takes more explanation. So some some things that God has done that we should pray for God to do again uh, is there was deep conviction in the Holy Spirit. right In, in Isaiah 65 and in Ezra 9, it, it speaks about... People trembling at God's word. Uh, Ezra is a good one. I heard a sermon on that just this week. And, And Ezra saw what the people were doing in rebellion after God had brought them back. And he sat down, he pulled out his hair, and he began to pray. And then he said, all of those who trembled at God's word sat down and began to pray with him. They were all convicted. right? Of course, John 16 is the passage that speaks about the Holy Spirit convicting us of sin and righteousness and the judgment to come. And then Acts 2.37 is the end of the, the, the sermon on the day of Pentecost. When the people cried out, what must we do to be saved? Now, I think we would all agree that this level of conviction is missing in our day. I mean, we just don't see this uh, in, in our day and in our culture. In our Now, again... I'm going to frequently reference the American church, not because I'm down on America or the American church, but this is where I am, this is what I see. So what goes on in China or Canada, I don't know. But I know that within the American church, to see people who tremble at God's Word, who are deeply convicted over their sin, is rare. It is far more common in our day for people to just not care. Right and, and I don't even mean getting mad. Right? You come to church, the Bible's preached or taught, and it's that sin that they're committing and they get angry. Hey, at least that's a response. That's that's better than nothing. But more often than not, what actually happens is people just don't care. They're not convicted, they're not angry, they don't feel anything at all the fact that their lives are out of sync with God's Word does not bother them. And as long as they're not bothered, they are not going to change. They are not going to be brought to repentance, whether it's lost that need to be saved or Christians who need to progress in sanctification or be restored from being backslidden. So, So do it again. Bring this kind of deep conviction in our midst. Make us a people that tremble at your word. Right? something else that, that happened in Scripture that we see that God did was that lives were radically transformed. Right? Acts and Timothy, Acts 9 and, and Timothy, both talk about the Apostle Paul. Right? Remember, he was Saul. He was a blasphemer. He was insolent and he was a, a persecutor of the church of Jesus Christ. And I always want to point out that with insolent, what it means is he kind of enjoyed the hardships he brought into the lives of the people he was persecuting. And he was brought from being Saul, the Pharisee and persecutor of Jesus, to Paul, the apostle, for Jesus. I mean, that is a, a massive transformation in the apostle Paul's life. Acts 19, the whole chapter Uh, It is about Paul's, one of Paul's ministries. Those two verses that I've referenced there, 18 and 19, talk about people who were, that they weren't like Jews who were converted to Christianity. They were pagans, but they were, they were deep pagans, deeply entrenched in paganism. They were actually involved in witchcraft. So much so that when they got saved, they all came together and they brought their witchcraft books and they burned them. Um, and they burned them despite the fact the Bible says they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. So I did some some checking today. And in our day right now, an ounce of silver, which is about what a a, a piece of silver was worth, would be $14.50. Right? That would put those books being worth around $725,000 of money today. What a radical transformation to say, I was saved out of this and this book is so evil that I'm not going to sell it and take the money instead because if I sell it, somebody else will take it. Somebody else will be deceived by it. I want to, let's destroy it so it can't lead anyone else astray. What a, what a radical transformation to be willing to just destroy and lose that much money because you don't want to spread the evil that's contained in them. And again, we'd have to say that is vastly different than what we see in our day. I mean, we see people in our culture, in our churches, that make professions of faith in Jesus. And yet they retain the same values that they had when they were lost. They retain the same priorities that they had when they were lost. They retain the same attitudes that they had when they were lost. They, they do the same actions that they did when they were lost. They react to stressors and other issues exactly the same way they did before they were lost. They talk in exactly the same way that they did when they were lost. I mean, that is something, again, that is it, it should be shocking to us because we don't see that in Scripture. In Scripture, when people came to Jesus... They were radically changed. Paul was not unusual. What happened with those people burning off those books, that was not unusual in Scripture. That was just what happened. The only people that came to Jesus and left the same were people that rejected Jesus. And So in our day, we, we don't see it. So we should say, do it again, Lord. Do it again. Make radical transformation in lives, and then the last one. This is the one we're going to take the most time on: is people filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. I want to take more time on this one because, well, for one reason, I think it is the one that kind of leads to the others. Right? I mean, without the Holy Spirit, it's the Holy Spirit that brings the conviction, and it's the Holy Spirit that makes the radical transformation. So the Holy Spirit is is necessary to, to do all of the things that need to be done. I also want to do it because the Holy Spirit is typically within Baptist and Free Will Baptist circles the most neglected person of the Trinity. Not often it, it's treated as though the and this I, I read as a joke in a book, but the, the Holy Trinity is the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Bible. We're, we're almost afraid at times to talk about the Holy Spirit and the importance of the Holy Spirit to fill and empower people. And yet all throughout, what we see is that that's what He does. He fills and He empowers people. Right? And we're going to start actually in Luke. right? And, and Luke 4, that's the main one that we're going to, but we're going to start in Luke 3. Uh, go ahead and turn to Luke 3. We're going to turn here in this one. Luke three verses twenty-one and twenty two. It's just a quick look at, at Jesus. Right? Because Jesus kind of sets examples for us on how things ought to be done. So Luke three twenty one says, When all the people were baptized, it came to pass that Jesus was also baptized, and while he prayed, the heavens were open. And the Holy Spirit descended in a bodily form like a dove upon Him and a voice from heaven, which came from heaven, which said, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. So Jesus is baptized. He's about to start His ministry. And the Holy Spirit descends from heaven and sets upon Him. Right now look at Luke 4 and 1. Then Jesus, being filled with the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. So Jesus... The Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. He is filled with the Spirit and then He is led by the Spirit. The Spirit leads Him at the time that is the the time of, of His temptations. The next several verses deal with the temptations, the way He dealt with them. We're not going to look at that, but now jump to verse 14. Jesus was successful over His temptations and it says, Then Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. The news Of him went all throughout the surrounding regions. Right? So, Jesus, the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. He is filled with the Spirit. He is led by the Spirit. And then he comes in the power of the Spirit. And now, verse 18 and 19, which is the main part I wanted us to look at, but all of that was important. The Holy Spirit had come upon Jesus. Verse 18, the Holy Spirit, or the Spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus says, because he is. Anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Right, so the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus for a reason. To empower him to go and do things, to preach the gospel, to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty, give sight to the blind, set the oppressed free, and proclaim the acceptable year of the of the Lord. Now, something that I see as neat and important in how this works uh, is how the Word and the Spirit work together throughout this, right? It's not Word or Spirit. It's Word and Spirit. But right? the Holy Spirit came upon Jesus and had anointed Him to preach the Gospel. Well, that's Word. He was there to, to proclaim the good news. Then the Holy Spirit also came upon Jesus to heal the brokenhearted. That, that's Spirit. Right, that's something that the Holy Spirit does in the life of the person who hears the word being proclaimed. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's word that you you can be set free. You don't have to live enslaved to sin and shame any longer. The Holy Spirit, and then the Holy Spirit came upon him so that the recovery of sight to the blind. That's that spirit. That's something the Spirit does in the person's life. Right, So we have Jesus proclaiming the Word, and as He proclaims the Word, the Spirit does something in their lives. Right? Jesus, The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus to set at liberty those who are oppressed. That's also Spirit. And proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's Word. Right? And so all throughout, we see that this is the way that it was going to be. Jesus would preach the Word, and as He preached the Word, the Holy Spirit would do something in their lives. Right? And, and that... Is the way it's meant to be. That there is meant to be word and spirit at work in our lives, in our churches, and in in the Christian community. And this is important because what we often find in our day is a division between word and spirit. In a lot of places, it's either word or spirit. Right? And it's one or the other, but that's not the way it was meant to be. It was meant to be word and spirit. We see this all throughout the ministry and the life of Jesus, but we also see it throughout the early church. Right When we go to the book of Acts, in Ephesians, Paul says we are to be filled with the spirit. Right, That's a command. Be filled with the spirit. And the wording of that in the Greek carries with the idea of something that needs to be done over And over again. But it's not that we are. Once for all filled with the spirit. But we need to be filled with the spirit. Continually. And again when you read the book of Acts. You find over and over again. That they prayed. And they were filled with the spirit. It was something that happened over. And over again. In fact one of the commentators I read. Said that the the command in Ephesians 5.18. Could be translated as. Be being filled. The spirit. So that's not talking about. Being dwelt by the Spirit, that happens when we're saved. But filled and empowered and led by the Spirit, that is something that happens extra, over and over and over again in our lives as believers. Right Then we get to the two references I used in Acts, and we see Word and Spirit working together. And I want to look at them sort of quick. Turn to Acts 4, 29, page 833. In Acts 4, the apostles had been threatened and told not to preach any longer in the name of Jesus. So they gathered together to pray. Notice what they prayed in verses 29 and 30. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant to your servants that with all boldness we may speak your word. And by stretching out your hand to heal, that with signs and wonders may be done to the name of your holy servant, Jesus. They're praying for word and spirit. Right, Because it is the Spirit that does those signs and wonders, the healings and all of that stuff. So they're saying, let the Word give us boldness to preach the Word. And as we preach the Word, let the Spirit work and do something in their lives. And then what happens? Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken. They were filled with the Spirit and they spoke the Word of God with boldness. Right? So they prayed for Word and Spirit to work together. And then Word and Spirit worked together. Both of them, they were filled and empowered by the Spirit. Now turn to Acts 19, verse 8 through 11. Verse 8 it says, And he went to the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning, persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. There's word. But when some were hardened and did not believe and spoke evil of the way before the multitude, he departed from them, withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily, in the school, Tyrannus. And this continued for two years, so there's the word for a long time. And so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Now God worked unusual miracles, the hand of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick, and the diseases left them, the evil spirits Went out of him. So there's word and spirit. Right? Paul preached the word. And the spirit worked powerfully. You see this combination all throughout the New Testament. It started with Jesus. It went throughout the New Testament. And it went throughout the early church in general. The kingdom of God advanced. As normal everyday believers. Were filled with the spirit. Led by the spirit. And empowered by the spirit. Uh, but what about today? Do we see believers being filled, led, and empowered by the Spirit? Again, I'm not talking about indwelt by the Spirit. I'm talking about filled, led, and empowered to help advance the kingdom of God. Do we see that in our day? I mean, you just think about what the Bible tells us about the work of the Spirit in our lives. When we are saved, we are born again by the Spirit. We are indwelt and sealed by the Spirit. We are also gifted, empowered by the Spirit. And the Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead lives in us, leads us, and empowers us. All of that is what the Bible tells us is for us today. And if that's the case, shouldn't all of that be seen in some way? Shouldn't all of that be visible in the lives of those who are born of the Spirit, filled and dwelt with the Spirit, filled of the Spirit, led of the Spirit, and empowered by the Spirit? When we were saved, we were born again. We are Spirit-filled, Spirit-led, and Spirit-empowered. For what, though? So that we can barely keep from cussing someone out at Walmart or at a ball game? And stay basically the same for the rest of our lives. Except we come to church a couple of times a month. I mean, that is what we see in the American version of this. But it is not what we see in the New Testament. It is not what we see when we look at the Bible. That's not what we see. We see believers, all believers, regular believers, ordinary believers, flawed believers. Born of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, led of the Spirit, empowered by the Spirit. You say, well, if that was Paul doing signs and wonders and healings and all of that, that's not us. Well, yeah, okay, maybe not, but shouldn't it be something? I mean, shouldn't it be something? Isn't the power that raised Jesus from the dead significant enough to be something? Visible and evident That's not us. Not natural. Not what we would do or be on our own. It should be. So we look at Scripture. People filled and empowered by the Holy Spirit. We should pray, do it again Lord. Do it again. So we want to know what God has done. But then we also want to be in awe of what God has done. Right. Go ahead and turn back, if you haven't already, turn back to Habakkuk. Habakkuk in, in the New King James, he says, I, I heard and was afraid in the Christian standard. said, I was in awe. And that's a great response to the deeds that he knows that God has done. He is in, deed, he is in awe of the great power of his God. Now, as, as a Jewish guy, he was taught the stories of creation, the exodus, and, and others like that since he was a child. But despite his familiarity with them, he had not lost his, his awe of he remembered them. He thought about them. They were amazing to Him that His God really did that. I think that's the key thing. These weren't stories to Him. These were things His God really did. And I mean, when we think about stories, biblical accounts of God's power, how do we respond to them? I mean, think about, again, some from that the Habakkuk would have thought of creation. I mean, the Bible says there was nothing, and then God spoke, and then there was everything. I mean, how, how awesome is God that He can speak the world to existence? Right? Exodus. I mean, Exodus, so many familiar stories in that, but we forget that, we can forget, I guess, that it's, that it's just a picture of God's power. He delivered His people from Egyptian slavery with ten mighty acts that demonstrated His superiority, over all of the false gods of Egypt. Then as a final demonstration of His power, He parted the Red Sea so that His people could cross over on dry land. And as the Egyptians tried it, He closed the sea over them in judgment, crushing the nation. Or the battle of Jericho. God told His people to walk around the city once a day for six days and then seven times on the seventh day. After the seventh time to yell and blow trumpets, And God would take care of it. And the walls fell down. And God brought victory to the people. God caused the sun to stand still. Again, in the book of Joshua, after marching all night and fighting all day, the sun was going down and Joshua prayed for God to make the sun stand still so that they could win and be done with that battle. And He did. We we looked at some of the stuff from Jesus. But think about all the times that Jesus... Healed the sick, healed the lame, healed the blind, raised the dead, multiplied food, and so many other things. Great demonstrations. The awesome power of God. The book of Acts. Again, we talked about some of those, but over and over again in the book of Acts, we see the mighty power of God on display. Even the book of Revelation. I mean, even if we don't understand all that the book of Revelation has to say to us, The one overarching thing we should be able to see is that God is awesome. right? Because basically the story of Revelation is God decides it's time for the world to end. And so He brings it to an end. Now, (coughs) the people don't like it and they push back, but that doesn't change anything because God's God. And then the devil doesn't like it and he pushes back, but that doesn't change anything because God's God. I mean, He's just awesome and powerful. And we see that all throughout Scripture. And then on top of that, we're told things about His power like God can do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ever ask or imagine. How do we respond? How do we respond to those things? Do we, what's it, that's a neat story? Do we think of it maybe as a kid's tale? Do we go, ho-hum, oh, I've heard it so many times? Or does it just cause us to worship God because of how <coughs> great and awesome He is? But if we want God to do it again, we have to be in awe of what he has done, of who he is and what he has done. So we know what God has done, be in awe of what God has done, and then believe that God still does what he has done. Right? Habakkuk's faith is amazing. Revive your work in the midst of the years. And what he's he's not talking about, we typically think about that revival, revive us. And that's not exactly what he's saying. Instead, what he's saying is, God, all that stuff you've done in the past that I've heard about, do it again. Revive that work right now in the midst of this time that we are now living. Now, he believes that God can. He believes that God can still do all the things that He had done. And it's significant to me that he believes this because he does not live in a day... Where God is doing these sorts of things. And there are a variety of reasons for it. The, the Israelites are in rebellion. They, they have a general lack of faith in the greatness and the power of their God. But despite that, Habakkuk, he doesn't come up with reasons why God doesn't do what he had done before. But he doesn't determine that, that since he had never experienced those things, he would only heard stories and never seen them that God didn't do them anymore. He didn't conclude that it wasn't rational to believe that God still did stuff like that. He believed that what God did, he could still do. What about us? I mean, do we believe that God can still do all the things that Scripture says he has done? Now, there are common reasons people give for saying God does not do sort of things anymore. One is the time for this has passed. And that's a pretty common view uh, to believe that these sort of things have gone away and God doesn't do them anymore. I, I read a guy a few months ago and he said the age of miracles has ceased. But he wasn't just talking about miracles like raising the dead. He was just talking about really God doing anything big or significant. God just doesn't do miraculous or supernatural things because all of that has ended. Pretty much everything that we talked about, even like revivals and mass transformation and that sort of stuff. It's just the time for all of that kind of stuff is gone and we aren't going to see it anymore. Some would say it it doesn't happen because they've never experienced it. right? They would say that it doesn't happen anymore and they know it doesn't happen because they've never experienced it. And that's proof that it doesn't happen any longer. In fact, I've got a book. It's a pamphlet in my office written by, in fact, a free will Baptist guy. And his explanation to start off why these things don't happen is they've never happened to him. Therefore, they're not real. They don't happen. And when other people say, "Well, they've, I've seen things similar to that. I've, I've had stuff like that happen," the response of those who say they've never experienced it is, "Well, phew, come on. I don't. I mean, that was them. You know who them are. They they said it." And, Do you have proof? That's a big thing. Do you have proof? I mean, do you have proof that it happened? Did you have your cell phone out and a video of it? Do you have documented evidence? Do you have proof? So there's an immediate rejection with skepticism and criticism. And that's common. It's not rational. Uh, We live in an enlightened day, and many would say it's just not rational to believe this sort of stuff any longer. Now, with this, I'm not even really talking about like professed atheists. I'm talking about Believers. People who would say they are believers in Jesus Christ, and they would say it's just not rational to believe that this stuff happened. Um, they, they do all that they can to explain away miracles in scripture. Right, some of the more common ones. God didn't cause the walls to fall at Jericho. Right, walls weren't made very well back then. They just didn't have really good engineering. And so as the Israelites walked around, it stumbled on the ground and it destabilized the wall. And then that final day where they all walked around, they blew the trumpets, and they all hollered. That was the final straw, and everything just happened to fall right at that moment. It wasn't a miracle. It was just an engineering wizardry on Joshua's part. Jesus didn't multiply the food. when When the people saw the little boy give his lunch to Jesus, it inspired them. And they all gave their lunch to Jesus, too. And when everybody pulled their resources together, lo and behold, there was enough and more. So the miracle wasn't that Jesus actually multiplied food. The miracle was that people were generous on that day and gave. God didn't save the three Hebrew boys from the flaming fiery furnace. Because you see, furnaces like that, they they had cold spots where the heat didn't reach. And where when the, the Nebuchadnezzar soldiers tossed them into the fire, and even though it killed the Nebuchadnezzar soldiers, for some reason it didn't hurt them. We don't know why. But they fell into a cold spot. And so they stood in the cold spot and then the heat didn't bother them and then they were able to get out without being hurt. It wasn't, it wasn't a miracle. It wasn't God the Son came and stood in there and protected them. That wasn't what happened. Um, and on and, and on and on it goes. People giving these rationalistic answers that explain away miracles. And see, I mean when you see it like that, why would you expect anything like that to happen today? There is a rational explanation For everything that appears to be a miracle in Scripture. So so you you shouldn't expect things like that today. Um, Another reason people give give is that Jesus said not to pray for these things. But the argument goes, Jesus said only an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. Therefore, it is sinful to pray for God to do these sort of things. Now, Jesus did make that statement. That an evil adulterous generation does seek after sign in, in Mark 8.12. But does, does that mean it's a sin to pray for God to do again what He's done in the past? And then the last one is, this is a path to deception. And many would say that praying for God to do it again, it opens you up to demonic deception. I, and, and what's bad is, of course, the crazies do exist, don't they? I mean, they're on YouTube, they're on TV. We know them Um and it's easy enough to say, look, what you're praying for, what you're talking about, it opens up all of this. You, you're just inviting demons and the devil into your church and in your life if you begin to pray, those sort of things. But, but is it? I mean, is it? And I intend on answering all of these questions tonight, but as you can see, time would not permit that. So my plan is to take next week and give answers to all of those questions from the Bible. Because there are biblical answers for all of those reasons why we shouldn't pray. Do it again, Lord. But for tonight, I just want to share these two verses. I am the Lord, I do not change. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And as we look at these things next week, and as we think about it in our own lives, here's what we have to know. If the Lord does not change, and if Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever... And yet He's going to stop doing what He's done before, which is a change. There's going to have to be some really solid, clear Bible that says at this point, in this time, stop praying for those sort of things because they're never, ever, ever going to happen again. So we have to know what God has done. We have to be in awe of what God has done. We have to believe that what God has done, He will do, or God still does what He has done. And then finally, pray for God to do it again. Revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Do it again and do it again now. Is kind of what He says. Revive your awesome deeds in the midst of Israel's current time of need. As Habakkuk looked at the terrible spiritual condition of Israel, he knew that their only hope was God reviving His mighty works. And so we pray, do it again, Lord. And we need to pray this prayer as well. There are, I thought about this, two realities that are implicit in this prayer. First is that we see the need for God to do it again. I mean, if I'm going to pray, do it again, there there must be within me something that says that is needed in our day. Habakkuk. Saw the need. He, he looked at the way the people of God were. And he said they are so far from the way they should be, God. The only hope is is you. To come and do it again and turn hearts back to you. Do we see? Do we see that? And the thing is, we should. We should. You know, I've mentioned the, the state of the church in America before. But let me just kind of remind uh, since we have a few minutes. Around 3,000 new churches in America are planted every year. At the same time, around 3,500 churches close every year. I mean, that's that's a losing number. Um, and of the churches that aren't closing, 85% of them are in a steep state of decline, which means that in... The next year or the year after, if something doesn't change, they will be one of the three thousand that closes. Statistically, seventy-five percent of teens active in their school youth groups today will not be in church within five years after high school. Now that's that's just the way it typically goes. Now, all of these things about churches closing and teens falling away, that's not just something that's going on, you know, out out there far away. What's going on here? In the last probably 16 or 18 months in Gaiman, we have had two churches closed down. Now they merged with other churches, but they still closed down. But in in Gaiman, typically there aren't more than 20% of our community that is on church on any given Sunday. It means about 80% of the people in our town, they don't either they either don't know Christ or they see no No concern about being a part of His church and seeking His will. And as I always want to mention, because it's something that boggles my mind, is that in China, roughly 8% of the population is made up of evangelical Christians. So in Guymon, the buckle, the Bible belt of Oklahoma, we're only doing slightly better than a place where it's essentially illegal to even be a Christian. In our evangelical impact on our town, in mean, our our community, our church—I don't know if you've noticed on Sunday mornings or not—but our church needs this just as much as anyone else out anywhere else does. And and really, if we don't see the need for God to do it again, see that. The dangerous condition, the desperate spiritual condition of our church, our community, our country. It's only because we're just not honestly looking at the world around us. Because when we look, we have to see that that is what the need is. I mean, that's all that will turn the tide. So the first implication is that we see the need, the second is that we want God to do it again. I mean, do do we? Do we want to see God's power on display? Do we want to see Him radically change lives, deeply convict sinners, even believers who said, Do we want to be empowered filled and empowered and led in our lives? You know, the real reality is many professing believers don't. My brother had a friend, and years ago they were talking about this sort of stuff, and, he, and he, my brother said, don't you want, I mean, don't you want to see that if it's from God? And his friend's response is, no, no, I don't. I mean, he had no desire for that at all. So what about us? Do we want God to do it again? And if we do, we need to pray for God to do it again. Now, it, again, the Bible's the foundation. If it's in here, we should pray for it. If it's just something we're making up, probably not. But if it's something God has done, then we ought to pray for God to do it again. Pray boldly. Pray expectantly. And pray Frequently, for God to do these things again. I'm going to take time and take prayer requests.